we are sharing this uh, journey together to discover what it is to share life together in a house of prayer where our life is rooted deeply in God's life, where our life is forged in the power of God's presence and God's spirit. With those first disciples, we come before Jesus in our worship. Even this morning, as I sit here, I um, am fully aware that we come together in this moment to bring ourselves before Jesus, asking the same question. Lord, teach us to pray. And what he gives us, you remember, I will remind us every week what he gives us in response to that request, Lord, teach us to pray, are words, just words. Say these things. And he offers us a prayer as a gift. In its opening words, that prayer invites us to say three things. Our Father in heaven, your name is holy. Our Father in heaven, your name is holy. And we are opening ourselves up again to the presence and the holiness of God in every single moment. We are remembering that the God who is transcendent in heaven, beyond us, above us, ascending above all things, is yet as near to us as a father. We open ourselves in every moment, no matter um, where we find ourselves, from places low and places high, from places that turn us one direction or another, we are bringing ourselves back as we take up this prayer in its opening words, we are bringing ourselves back to the presence of God in every single moment. Our Father in heaven, your name is holy. And having opened our hearts more fully to the God who is near, beyond us and yet near, with us, among us in every single moment, we stop and declare our allegiance again. And it's truly a gift because the truth is that there is much that conspires to claim your allegiance and to claim my allegiance and even to collectively claim the allegiance of the people of God on the whole. At this moment and this point in the prayer, I said last week, we stand at ground zero where the battle rages for your allegiance and for my allegiance. And we sat for a moment to recognize all the ways confessionally that our mind, our attention, our emotions, our feelings gravitate towards the kingdoms, more towards the kingdoms of this world than towards the kingdom of God. This phrase... Your kingdom come, your will be done, on earth as it is on heaven, is ground zero in the battle for your heart, your mind, and your soul. And so we don't just casually waltz through the prayer and say those words. We recognize that as we say them in every moment, we are declaring that our allegiance is given over to the kingdom of God, to the reign of God. We pray for the Spirit of God to fill us so that our life together might be marked with those things born of the Spirit in the reign of God. We open ourselves 
to the presence of God and we declare our allegiance. This is where the prayer invites us to stand, not just in this moment, but in every moment we pray it together. And it's why it's a gift. It's why it's a grace that we dare not take lightly this prayer. Let me say it this way, just because I feel like saying it this way in the moment. This prayer is dangerous because to truly say it over and over and over again so that its words are etched into our hearts and minds is to be transformed into people who passionately pursue the presence and the purpose of God in all things. And so we, we stop now in this moment, and I want to invite you, to uh, us together, to say uh, the words of this prayer. Let's stand together as we pray the words that our Lord Jesus has taught us to pray. Our Father in heaven, hallowed be your name. Your kingdom come, your will be done, on earth as it is in heaven. Give us today our daily bread. Forgive us our sins as we forgive those who sin against us. Lead us not into temptation, but deliver us from evil. For the kingdom, the power, the glory are yours now and forever. Amen. Be seated. Give us daily bread. It's a simple little phrase. How many of you have seen those paintings? Give us this day our daily bread. Usually it's with, um, I don't know, an older bearded man sitting at a table with a loaf of bread and his hands folded. Have you, how many of you have seen that, that painting? <laughs> it's a simple phrase. It's a common phrase. Give us this day our daily bread. And it resonates with us, right? Okay, let me just ask. How, I'm going to do it this way. How many of you live with someone or know someone who suffers under the plague of being hangry? <laughs> My wife's hand shot right up, first thing. She did not hesitate. She was bold. I'd never, I've never seen her praise Jesus that boldly. <laughs> you live with someone who's hangry? I don't know why it is. Some of us are more prone to this than others, that uh, when it comes uh, that time when we're ready to eat, it affects us more than other people. Some people, they can casually slide into mealtime. Others of us, we just crash into it full force, right? Hangry. Maybe this phrase resonates with us. It seems so simple and so obvious a request because... Um, it's the way that we are made. Our bodies demand, in the most basic sense, these things to sustain them. Yes? So we pray, give us today our daily bread. But here's the thing. That simple phrase gathers up a story long told by God's people. And when Jesus spoke these words, I am confident in saying that he had that story in view, that long story, and that when he handed it to his disciples, that phrase, give us today our daily bread, 
he had that story, um, he handed that story to them, a story that they knew and were familiar with. Let's say that story begins, as most stories for the people of God begin, back in Egypt. When God had formed through Abraham and called a people, and they, were, they had multiplied, and he had led them forward, and then at some point the descendants of Abraham find themselves in bondage in Egypt under the oppressive hand of Pharaoh. And they live in that state for years and years and years, for generation upon generation upon generation. My guess is you're familiar with this story too. And God raises up a deliverer in Moses and sends Moses to stand and confront Pharaoh and call God's people out of Egypt. And you know all the drama that builds up, right, as Pharaoh resists, and then there's signs, plagues, wonders, and then how God delivers God's people out of Egypt, and they gather up their things in haste, and they make their way out of Egypt. And as they're filled with hope and anticipation, God leading them forward up to the banks of the Red Sea. And then Pharaoh says, I, I, not, not so fast. And begins to pursue them with all of the might and force of the empire. Closing in on them fast. And they're trapped there. And God in God's power is strong and mighty to save, and he parts the waters of the Red Sea. And they cross through the waters of the Red Sea to the other side, and God vanquishes the enemy in the waters of the sea, and they stand on the other side of the bank of the Red Sea, and they dance the hallelujah. I mean, literally, I'm not making that up. They literally dance the hallelujah. They praise God for God's deliverance. I will sing to the Lord, for he is mighty. The horse and its rider he has consumed in the sea. The Lord is strong and mighty to save. His salvation goes before us. I'm telling you, they stand on the banks of the Red Sea, and they sing, and they dance the hallelujah, and they rejoice because... They have seen and they have experienced for themselves the hand of God's deliverance. They were just days out of Egypt. All that taken place. Isn't it a wonder then, with the smell of the empire still clinging to them, that they say, ah, oh, I wish we could go back. Isn't that crazy? The smell of the empire still clinging to them, kind of like when you walk into a 7-Eleven. I mean, you can be there for 30 seconds. You know what I'm talking about? And you walk out, and you smell like a fried burrito. <laughs> it just clings to you like that. They are so fresh out of Egypt, so fresh from the hand of God's deliverance, the smell of their oppression still lingering even as they walk into God's new future and they stop and they say, we should, have just, we should just go back. You know what happens? Three days into their journey, 
Waters of the Red Sea behind them in the rearview mirror. Egypt in the rearview mirror. And they're thirsty. And there's no water. And they go a little further and they're thirsty and there's no water. And they go a little further and they're more thirsty and there's no water. And they begin to cry out to Moses and Moses cries out to God. And there they are. Finally, at water. Yes. The place is called Mara. And they rush to the water. And the first one to get there, Speedy. No, I don't know if his name was Speedy. I'm just kidding. He's the first one to get there. He bends down to take some water and spits it right back out. It's, it's so bitter, it's like poison. Can you imagine the disappointment? Oh, we're out here. But there's no water. We'll die out here with no water. It's so basic, so fundamental to life. No water, no life. And then there's water, but you can't drink it. And Moses cries out to God, and God says, Hey, take that piece of wood and throw it into the water. And he throws it into the water, and the water becomes sweet, and they drink from the waters of Mara. Mara means bitter. It's bitter water becomes sweet. It's the hand of God's deliverance. Again, with water. With water. And they lap that up. And you can see the life come back into them, the brightness come back into their eyes. Their spirit begin to be filled with hope once more. And they make their way from that place. And you know where they show up next? A place called Elam. And at Elam, there are 12 springs. This is water bubbling up from the ground. Twelve springs at Elam, and I like this note. I'm, I'm glad they threw this note in. There's twelve springs and 70 palm trees. Hey, let's go there. <laughs> and they recline for a time. They take respite again at the water that bubbles up from the ground and under the shade of the palm trees. Isn't it strange then that right out of Elam, God's provision of water at the Red Sea, God's provision of water at Mara, God's provision of water at Elam, that they move from Elam, how quickly they say. If you follow this in Exodus 16, it's almost as if just as soon as they turn for the next leg of the journey, they're saying, we have no bread It'd be better if we had just stayed in Egypt. We have no bread. I'd rather just that we had not even come out here in the first place. Moses, thank you very much. What is this bipolar faith that so quickly turns from the song and dance on the banks of the water to the grumbling, complaining, let's just go back to the old oppressive way of life. What lays hold of us so that the strong arm of the Lord, mighty to save, fades so quickly, turning us back on an old way of life that's really no life at all? What strange demon 
possesses us like that. I don't know what you'd call it, but I've labeled it spiritual hangriness. <laughs> we are hungry. Hungry with the rumbling in the pit of our stomachs for bread. The most basic sustenance for human life. And I don't care who you are, whether you are young or old or somewhere in between. Whether you have a lot or a little. Whether you sit in a moment of great despair and grief or great joy. It's common to every last one of us. No bread, no water, no life. We are hungry with the kind of hunger that is lethal and life-threatening, a hunger for something to feed our souls. We are desperately hungry. That's what the story says. And that's where the prayer that Jesus gives us leads us. What's assumed before you say the words, give us this day our daily bread, is that you are desperately hungry. And in the face of that deep hunger, God says in the story, I will rain down bread from heaven for you. I will rain down bread from heaven from you. And every morning there's bread, heaven's bread. All they need to do is go out and gather the bread. But, get this, only enough for the day. Only enough for the day. Except on the sixth day where they can gather enough for two days so that on the Sabbath day, the seventh day, they don't have to go out and work to pick up the bread. And so they can gather enough bread on the sixth day for two days and it will keep. That's the instruction. The next day, there is bread, they fill their baskets, enough for the day, that is all. The sixth day, they fill their basket, enough for two days, there is bread, there is life, that's the way it works, bread from heaven. Bread falls every morning, the people gather enough for one day, but in the story, you know how it goes? They just can't do it. They go out, and they gather more than enough for one day. And you know what happens to the bread? It's nasty. <laughs> it spoils. It's, you're not eating that. There's no life in it. Throw it out, bread, if you gather more than enough for that day. Except on the sixth day, when it doesn't spoil over one night, it keeps for two days. Isn't that something? When they gather more than they need for any other day, it rots. You see the pattern, right, in the story? Let me just walk you back through it. Stay with me here. God delivers from Egypt. They have no water. 
The story asks the question, can the God who parted the waters of the Red Sea bring water for us, sustain life with water for us? And God parts the waters and God gives them water and He is Jehovah God. Jireh, our provider. The word means provider. Jehovah, Jireh, God, our provider. Is God able to deliver us through the water, from the water, through the water, by the water? Yes, He is able. And then the hunger pains come and makes them wish that they could go back. Can the God who gives sweet water not supply their every, every need? And He rains down sweet bread from heaven. Jehovah, Jireh, God, their provider. Is God able or not? The God who grants you and me life and a future through Jesus and in every way provides and sustains, who graces our days with the love of children, with the blessing of jobs, and oftentimes more than we need, and even in moments where we think we face scarcity in comparison, more than we need. Can the God who gives and sustains our lives not meet our every need? Do we trust that that's true or not? If you don't trust that that's true, if you don't believe that that's true, do you know what you do? You go out and you say, we better gather up all we can while we can. Because this bread that God gives us in this moment may not be enough. It may not be enough. The story says God is able, but the story also says, look, they don't trust him. They don't believe it's true. Over against all evidence to the contrary of God's great provision, their own declaration of God's salvation, their own falling down before Jehovah Jireh, they just can't believe it's true. The story plays out that way over and over and over again. And that story is the story that carries these words of the prayer to us. Give us this day our daily bread. Oh God, you are enough. You are enough. Jaira. In every circumstance, every circumstance, Jaira. Enough. We declare God our provider. Even when it's difficult to believe, we pray because more often than not, we are inclined to gather baskets of self-reliance. We order our own lives. It's not just what we have or we don't have, but it's how we choose to be in control of our own lives. If I can order my life well enough, if I follow all the rules, play the game correctly, 
in my mind, I can get things set right and I will have enough or I will be enough. We take our baskets in anticipation of bread that rains down from heaven to fill our deepest hunger and we go and we fill them with our own self-reliance. You see? We construct our own plans, and sometimes it's our hobby to construct the plans of others, too. (laughs) You know how that is? Have you been in relationships like that? Maybe you're the plan constructor for someone else. (laughs) And it's so frustrating when they don't follow your plan for them. If you could only get them to follow your plan then things would be fine and they would have bread from heaven. That too is a basket of self-reliance. To allow ourselves to be so consumed with our own selves that we not only order our own days for the God of everyday provision, but we order the lives of other people (laughs) for God's provision And then wonder why we're so miserable and frustrated. That's a basket full of self-reliance. And the story says that when you gather baskets like that, that bread spoils rotten. There's no life in it. But I want to say this too in this moment. Sometimes, sometimes, it's not that we take up our baskets and we go to gather the bread that comes down that God gives us and we take more than we need out of our own self-reliance and insecurity and inability to trust Him, but sometimes we take our baskets and God rains down the bread from heaven and we walk right past it. Our baskets stay empty. It seems the opposite problem, but it's really the exact same thing. No life. No sustenance. We cannot believe that we are worthy of the gift that is given. We cannot believe that what we see with our eyes is actually true, or if we can see it, that it could possibly be for us. This may be even more dangerous than gathering up a basket of self-reliance. It's the basket of self-despair where God rains down bread to fill our deepest hunger and we can't trust that it's true enough to reach down to pick it up or that if it is true, that it's even intended for us. We do not believe that God's love is enough for us. Intended for us. And I want to say this. Listen, if you're walking around with an empty basket today because you feel like you are not worthy or you're not enough, hear this. The love of God that rains down from heaven to satisfy our deepest need and our deepest hunger is for 
you. Take it. Eat it. Believe it. Know it. It's for you. You don't have to doubt that. You don't have to live under this sense that somehow you are not worthy of God's love or someone else's love or the church's love. It's for you. Take it. And know that when you get up the next morning, it's going to be there again. The love of God's for you. You are enough. You are worthy in every circumstance. You are worthy of it. Trust it. And if when you get to the end of the day, you feel hungry again, and night falls, and you go to sleep hungry, know that when you get up the next morning, it's going to be there again and again and again. It's for you. This is why we join our voices to pray these words. Give us today our daily bread. Simple. Life. Give us today our daily bread. It's enough. It's enough. I want you to know that if you're here this morning and the Word of God rests upon you in a way that moves you to say, I long for this sense that God's provision is enough and that I don't have to either scramble around to try and gather up and make enough life for myself. You can rest in God's provision or or you struggle to believe that it's even true about you, that you are worthy of God's love. Know that you are. And we're going to sing in a moment, and Dustin's chosen the right song for this moment. So I want you to listen to those words. And if you're moved, just to say, I want someone to pray over me in this moment. I want you to know you can come here to the front, you can go to the back, there will be shepherds of this church who will pray over you. If you feel led to come to the front here, we'll pray over you. If you feel like I cannot stand against all that this world has thrown against me and try and do it on my own anymore, and you want to step into the waters of God's good, saving grace, know that you can come in this moment, and you can stand in the waters of baptism, and receive life like bread from heaven. It's enough for you. You can come and make that choice. You can come and say, hey, I'm imperfect, but I want to be a part of a family of people who take up these words and make them their own, who cling to God's provision for life in every day. You can be a part of a family like that. Let's turn our hearts now fully toward the God who teaches us to say, give us today our daily bread. Let's stand together and sing.